morning we're going to continue in our Corinthian study. We haven't been in it very long, just, just a handful of weeks, and uh, we've been calling it Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church, lots of C's. Um, and we've been focused lately on Paul's first imperative or correction in chapters 1 through 4, where he addressed the Corinthians' carnal unity. And when I say carnal unity, what I mean is it's a, a type of unity that they had that wasn't scriptural, it wasn't biblical. It was based on carnal things and carnal likes and carnal desires and those sorts of things. And we know that they were all sort of competing with one another, one another over their favorite preachers, and they had formed these little cliques and groups and all that. And um, it was just weird that they were aligning themselves rather than under Christ, but they were claiming to follow this guy or that guy. And that was the situation, and that's the, the thing that, that Paul deals with in these first four chapters. Um, I would say just as a, as a baseline thing, these believers in Corinth, they were just putting way too much value and emphasis on skill or style of teaching. They, they were kind of exalting style over substance. And I, I would say that I'm, I'm, as a man, as a Christian man, as a preacher, I'm probably more interested in substance, but I certainly don't like blasé, boring style. Right, I don't like it when sermons aren't dynamic and and you know and as if the guy that's preaching, he's, he he was a dead man raised to life, but he's still acting dead. And uh, you know, we we as preachers don't make the word of God alive; it makes us alive. But I think there's a lot of preachers out there that are attempting to kill the word of God, but just by being boring. So, but in this particular church, the emphasis and focus is was more on style than anything else. They just liked the style of Apollos or the style of Paul or the style of Cephas. And, and I think that um, they probably had the same problem that churches today have. And, and what that is is that, you know, you have several preachers that preach at a church and then people, you know, are always there when so-and-so preaches. But when they find out he's not preaching the next Sunday, they tend to take that Sunday off and then come back when their guy is on. Uh, I know how that was, and I know how it is, because I, I was kind of guilty of doing that when I was at Big Valley back in the day. I'd find out Rick Countryman wasn't preaching on a Saturday night, and I'd, I'll just go next week. Because I wanted to sit under his preaching because it was very dynamic and preachy, and I just liked it. And so this is a problem that we've all probably encountered or wrestled with, but it was a big problem in this church, and I'm sure they had the same problem. Oh, Apollos is preaching this weekend? I'll be there. Cephas? Not too much. So, but if you just stop and think about who their heroes of preaching were, they were Peter the, the Apostle and Paul and Apollos, who wasn't an apostle but an amazing preacher. These guys had an amazing setup. Well, churches today just don't have this level of preaching, I think. But in any case, they had formed these little groups and with these preferences. And, um, and that's just really kind of a cultural thing in Corinth, in ancient Corinth. Um, this mentality of having your favorites, it was pervasive in Greek society. Just stop and think why, because the Greeks basically invented philosophy, the science of philosophy. What is philosophy? It, it, it's, it's a science in and of itself, but what makes philosophy interesting or not isn't just the ideas, but it's the way that somebody uses rhetoric. It's the way that someone uses their oratory skill. It's the way that somebody communicates. And so this was not just a preference by this church. This is a cultural preference. This is something that that whole community valued. They loved style, mostly, and even over substance to some degree. And if you planted a church in the ancient Greco-Roman world, one of the cultural expectations or community expectations would be that you have really, really, really talented, gifted orators, 
really good rhetoricians, really good communicators. If you planted a church and, and didn't have very good preaching, like it, stylistically it just wasn't very dynamic or engaging or maybe eloquent or what have you, then there would be very little cultural interest in your church and in your preaching. And to be honest with you, I kind of think that's a problem we have today. That people are, are so, they like their preferences so much that they'll just go to a church because of the preaching. Or they'll just go to the church because of the music. They just like that music there. Or they like that preaching there. And so this was a problem they had then. It's a problem we have now. But the expectation was huge. You just had to have really, really good teaching. And um, I would just say that if a philosopher in those days didn't have a, a good-sized following of disciples, he wasn't worth his salt. Because not only were there potent communicators and, and philosophers in that day, but they would, if they were really, really good, they would gain followers. They would gain students. They would gain disciples. And those who were really, really good had a lot of disciples. Maybe, you know, like college kids or young adults who were aspiring to get into that kind of vocation. And so the guys that didn't have any followers, I mean, you just wouldn't even show up to listen to them because they don't have a following. They don't have an entourage. And I think what was happening in this church is that believers who were coming out of this, they were part of this culture, but they were coming out of this culture. They were bringing this from their culture into the church. And, and they were attempting to become followers of certain teachers that were talented. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. Oh, yeah, we're better than all you. We follow Jesus. That's what it says in chapter 1. So the culture and the church, there was a... There was a an unhandsome, unholy marriage between the two. You know, when you get saved, you walk away from the culture. You don't bring the culture into the church. And today, what are people attempting to do in, in their churches? They're trying to bring the culture in to bring the culture in. Trying to look like the culture and sound like the culture with some limitations to be appealing to the culture. Kind of dressing up the church as a harlot to be attractive to sinful dead men. And in any case, that was the background. That was the problem that was going on here in this church. These people were like the culture. They never left it behind, and they had their preferences, and they wanted to follow this guy and that guy. Uh, they, were, they were attempting to do this stuff. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, Paul admonished the Corinthians to follow Christ alone. Look, you, you can have... Teachers that are your preference, that's fine. We all do, right? I certainly prefer R.C. Sproul over Joel Osteen. If I don't, I need to find a new job. Although I would say Joel Osteen certainly tickles my ears better than R.C. Sproul ever has, and he makes me feel good about myself. Uh, but for the most part here, he's saying in that first chapter, in that first section, you need to follow Christ. You follow Christ alone. You don't follow the culture. You don't follow men. You don't even follow us in that regard. Why do you follow Christ alone? Because he is the Savior who was crucified for you. He's the one that died for your sin. In fact, you were baptized not in my name, not in Joe Blow's name. You were baptized in the name of Jesus. So he is your Savior. He is the one you are following. Quit saying you're following this guy or that guy or whatever. Quit acting like the culture. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 to 31, Paul continues his powerful admonition by juxtaposing the simple, simple gospel, which is the power and wisdom of God, with the empty philosophies and techniques of the world, which are neither powerful nor wise. 
Look, we're people of the gospel. We're not people of the philosophies and the swill they're, 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 they're spewing over at the Acropolis. We're people of, that follow Christ, and we're people of the message of Christ, which is the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation. That's our leader, that's who we follow, and that's our message. Because I tell you, when people get really interested in communication style, they can be led away by really talented false teachers, false philosophers. There's plenty of them. There's no shortage of them out there. So that was Paul's admonition in those first two sections, and primarily in chapter 1. In the next section, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the examples that he had set for them during his initial visit when he actually came into Achaia and went in through Corinth and preached the gospel and planted a church. He's pointing back to the example he had set for them early on. When he first came to Corinth, Paul, he knew his audience. He knew what it was like to be Greek. He uh, knew his audience very well. He was born in Tarsus, which is in the Greco-Roman province of Cilicia. It's just, it's incredibly Greco-Roman in language, in style, in cultural nuance. He, he wasn't raised in that community. He was raised in Jerusalem, but he was born in that community. In fact, he even had Roman citizenship, Acts 21, verse 39. So what I'm telling you is that when Paul came into Achaia, that's the Roman province, and then went into Corinth, that's one of the cities in that province, when he went into it, he knew his audience inside and out because he had a Greek background. He had a Roman background. He understood what these people valued. He understood the emphasis they put on style. He understood how much they appreciated and loved their local philosophers and liked to go down to the Acropolis and listen to the latest ideas. He understood how these people were, how they operated, how they thought, how they functioned. In fact, it was very common for Paul to even try to, in some sense, without any kind of sinfulness, to become like his immediate audience. He wanted to become kind of like them so that they could relate to him so that he could convey the gospel in terms that they would comprehend and understand. In 1 Corinthians, in this very same book here in chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, he declared this, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having uh, the law, that would be Gentiles, non-Jews, I became like one not having the law. Why? To win those not having the law. So Paul, when he goes into Corinth, he already knows how this culture thinks and how it operates and how it functions. But nine times out of ten, when he went into a place like this, he would try to become a little bit like them without being sinful so that they could relate to him, so that he could convey the gospel in terms they would understand. But what's super, super interesting about the book of Corinth and about his time in Corinth primarily is that he did not really apply that rule that he used everywhere else. This is an instance here where he did not become like them in a sense to reach them. He did not. How so? Well, he didn't take on the popular techniques, the stylistic nuance. He didn't take these things on from the local Greek philosophers to reach these folks. He didn't apply that to themselves. And he had really, really good reasons for this. And the reasons are found in this very text Please take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking at just verses 1 through 5 today. That's the first section. I have entitled this message, Remembering Paul's Examples. 
These examples were set for them. They are set for us. They are just as relevant today as they were almost 2,000 years ago. I'm going to give you four Ds just to keep the teaching simple so we can categorize everything and put it under these headers, these Ds. I'm going to pray before we get to work. Father, we thank you thus far for all this tremendous, amazing worship that you have worked in our hearts uh, through song and through the, the reading and even through the announcement time, just getting a sense of what's going on around here. Uh, Lord, we want to just stop now and, and just begin to really focus our minds, help us, help us just to put away with the cares of this world and the things that we were dealing with that are immediate, that we were even dealing with as we pulled in. Um, it's not that you don't care about those things. You do, and you're sovereign over those things. They're part of your providence. But, Lord, we don't want to be distracted by the cares of this world or our immediate needs. And so we, we pray now, Lord, that you would help us to focus, help us, help us to have eyes that see and ears to hear and, and, and minds to receive, hearts to receive, uh, a humble spirit that will take the word and apply it and live it out. It does us no good to be hearers without being doers. We need to be both. We need to hear, listen, comprehend, and that's the work of the spirit, and we need to apply and live out. That's our responsibility through the power of the spirit. Teach us this morning from your word. Show us these reminders from Paul that he's showing these Corinthians. Help us to, to learn these things from this, this great example and from this awesome, amazing text. Be glorified in all that takes place this morning, especially in this message. Guide my thoughts and my tongue. Protect me from the evil one. I love you and want to bring you glory and pray in Christ's name. Amen. First D. First thing we see here is Paul's determination. Verse 1. And really, in some ways, these four Ds just kind of set the foundation for the whole book. These are his motivators. These are, these are the things that this is what he was determined to do as he came into the sea. These are just kind of foundational to the whole book. They'll help us understand the rest of the book. And we see his determination in verse 1. Listen to what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Stop there. Now, certainly Paul's not saying he did not speak with God's wisdom. He's just saying he didn't use the wise techniques of the culture. But the first thing he does here actually is it's, it's not formed in, in, in a question, but it's almost kind of a question because what he's actually doing is he's expressing his curiosity, his bewilderment over why they've exalted him and other teachers. He can't get his mind around when he came out and set an example for them why is it that you are now attempting to follow me as if I was your Lord? Why are you doing this with Cephas? Why are you doing this with, with um, Apollos or anyone else? So he's really kind of expressing his bewilderment. My little paraphrase would be something like, I, I can't get my mind around why you gathered a group under my name and are now bragging about me. When I did not use lofty speech, I did not use the so-called wise techniques of your local philosophers when I came in and proclaimed the testimony of God to you. That's what he's saying here. I, I, I don't understand what you're doing here by saying you follow me when when I came, I was about the most plain kind of preacher, teacher, speaker that one could be. I was nothing like those dynamic communicators over at the Acropolis. I wasn't even as a good a preacher as Apollos, because let me tell you, that guy was awesome. This is what he's saying. Why are you following me when I came? I didn't use all that technique. I didn't use all that skill. He just can't understand why they were exalting him when he taught the simple 
gospel in the simplest way. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul was highly intelligent. I would say he was a genius. And he possessed unparalleled oratory skill. The man could preach, the man could debate. The, the, nobody could really stand up to this guy. He, he was incredibly talented. He was an incredible preacher. I would liken him to being the Jonathan Edwards of his day. He was the Jonathan Edwards of his day, just forceful and clear and smart. He would preach, and I would walk out going, that was amazing. They'd say, what would you learn? I said, I have no idea. Why? Because it was above my pay grade. And in that case, a preaching sermon doesn't do you any good. But he was that skilled. He had massive skill. He is not saying and admitting to here that he doesn't have any kind of ability. He's simply saying that when I came out, I didn't employ my whole wheelhouse of skill to woo you to Christ. I spoke the plain gospel in plain terms. When he came to Corinth, he was determined not to utilize all of his oratory skill. Why? Because he knew his audience and he didn't want to distract them with eloquence. He didn't want to distract them with high communication skill, with unbelievable um, you know, just rhetorical talent. He, he was mindful of how they have and how they have kind of an addiction toward that and wanted to make sure that when he spoke, he spoke loud and clear and the gospel rang true and Christ was exalted. He did not want people to go come out of the services saying, that was an amazing sermon. What'd you learn? Nothing, but I like the way he talks. He wanted to avoid that. This was his determination. He goes there and he wants to be very very simple in all that he does. Really, his task was no different than our task. His task was no different than John the Baptist. What was it? To exalt Christ, not ourselves. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Now, if you have a, a talented preacher, someone who's really, really good at communication, sometimes people will latch onto that and they turn them into a rock star over time, church of 20,000 people, but usually the messages are pretty sorry. But this happens. I don't know what it is about us, but we just, we get focused on the wrong thing. Maybe the communicator, maybe the messenger rather than the Messiah. And what he's saying here is that I wanted to avoid all of that as I came in to your neighborhoods and preached the gospel. Why? Because I know how you are. And if they were fixed on him already when he was very simple, imagine if he had used his whole wheelhouse of skill. They would have thought that he died on the cross for them. He even said that back in chapter 1. I'm not your Savior. I wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. So he knew who they were, and he, he was determined to be very cautious and mindful of how they were. He knew that if he had displayed more of his skill set, the attention would have went to him instead of to Christ. He wanted sinners to repent and follow Jesus, not follow him, not follow some other teacher. Charles Hodge said this as... God had determined to save men not by human wisdom, but by the gospel. Paul, when he appeared in Corinth, came neither as an orator nor as a philosopher, but simply as a witness. You see, witnesses don't put on a show. They just witness to what, to what Christ has done. They just witness to the work of Christ. Now, when Paul did employ a little bit more of his potent reasoning skills at a community called Lystra, what happened? The people went nuts. They saw a miracle. They heard how good he was at communicating, and they started worshiping him as Hermes. 
Acts 14.12. In Greek mythology, Hermes was the herald of the gods. He was the god teacher that taught all the other gods, and he was the best teacher to ever live in Greco-Roman mythology. So this guy uses a little bit of his skill before the Lystrans, and what happens? Oh, Hermes! Oh, praise him! Let's make a sacrifice to him, and he's got Zeus with him. That's Barnabas. They interpreted him or saw him as a god because of how good he was at preaching. Because he worked a miracle. So what am I telling you? I'm telling you that the man was incredibly skilled. Probably more so than anyone else. But he was very cautious with his audience. Careful. Because he understood how the Greeks think and function. And he didn't want to lure anyone away from the one he came for. Jesus. He was very, very careful. In fact, listen to what happened when the Lystrans started worshiping him as Hermes. He tore his clothes, which just showed how disgusted he was with what was going on. And then he said, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain idols to the living God, Acts 14, 15. You know what happens when you have talented preachers in the pulpit today? They don't say this when people start to worship them through all these positive emails and all these accolades and pats on the back at the end of the message. They take it upon themselves and say, look at what I have created. I'm so happy with how talented and, and beautiful I am in the pulpit. This is the, this is the lure of pride. We have this pride, and, and, and all of a sudden, people are worshiping the messenger instead of the Messiah. Any preacher worth his salt is going to turn that right around on Christ and say, I, I, you do realize that I was standing up there because of Jesus. You do realize that I preached that sermon because of the Holy Spirit. You, you did hear who I was talking about. I didn't talk about myself. I told two stories. They had nothing to do with me. They had to do with Bruce and Cameron. Because I like to talk about the elders. Right? Bruce is looking at me like, you know what? You're going to get it after this. But you understand what I'm saying? This is the mentality. Do we not see preacher worship today? We do. And it, it's, it's this same pandemic of a problem. The spiritual immaturity that exalts the man. He's staying away from all of this with them. He, 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 he taught in Corinth, but his teaching, his preaching was devoid of lofty speech. He didn't employ eloquence or anything like that. He didn't even utilize or adopt as he usually adopted something from the culture to reach the culture. Nothing sinful. He didn't adopt the cultural techniques for communication. And it's not because he lacked any of these things. It's because he was determined to keep things as simple as possible so that the testimony of God, the gospel, would be loud and clear so that the eyes and ears of all those who heard, listened, watched would become fixed on the Messiah, not him, the messenger. Not him, the messenger. This is the example that Paul had set for the Corinthians. This was his determination. He was determined to go in and, and, to, and to behave and carry himself in this way. It's the example he set for them. He didn't set some high, uh, elegant communication example with a bunch of eloquence and oratory skill. He came and preached simply. And that's the example he set for them. And yet now we find that they are not following that example, are they? They're following the example of the culture. They're following the example of the culture. And, and they, 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 they're preferring one style over another and one talent over another. 
And this, of course, led to the carnal unity and then this blistering admonition from the apostle. Apostle. It is also, however, not just their example, it is our example. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to be well-spoken, just spoken. Speak the gospel. We're all called to do it. If you're a believer, if you're a follower, if you're a disciple, you're a Christian, you're, you're a member of the way, whatever you want to call it, you are in Christ, you're following Christ, you are called to speak the gospel and follow Paul's example. Rid yourself of all the eloquence and smart talk and just speak it in the simplest terms. How simple? This simple. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the grave so that sinners like us could be saved from judgment and damnation. It's that simple. Keep it simple. Stay away from all the fancy schmancy. You might have an audience at, at, at some point that requires a little more eloquence. Well, put a little bit in there if you can, but... Just keep it simple. Keep in mind that your preaching is not going to save anyone. You're just the messenger. You're not the Messiah. Take the burden off your shoulders to get it perfect. Just. You don't have to be well-spoken. Just speak. Just talk about the death of Christ. Just talk about the life of Christ. Just talk about the burial of Christ. Just talk about the, the sin, devil, um, hell-conquering, destroying Savior who rose on the third day. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Elaborate at times if you need to, but keep it simple. And I would say also stay away from all those man-made devices. There are plenty of them, like the sinner's prayer. You don't need that. The sinner's prayer has never saved anyone. Jesus is the Savior. A prayer doesn't save anyone. Although I would say, I agree with J.C. Ryle, no one gets saved apart from prayer because the sinner who wants to be saved has to cry out to Christ in prayer. But stay away from, hey, if you want to be saved, repeat this after me. Because what they'll do is they'll put their trust in that moment and in that, 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 um, that they're, they're copying you with that rather than in the Savior they're allegedly praying to. You just keep it simple. Preach the gospel, life, death, burial, and resurrection. You repent and trust in him, you'll be saved, you'll be changed, you'll be all of that. That's what you're called to do. Leave it at that and leave the results in God's hands and pray for that lost sinner. That's all you have to do. Don't say, hey, follow me in this prayer. I, I Frank, I, Frank, receive Jesus into my heart. This is nonsense. This was created in the 1840s, 1850, actually earlier than that, probably about the 1820s. Don't do it. Gives people false assurance. Just tell them what they need to do in love and pray for them. And watch the Spirit work. Keep it simple. But you have to speak up. Preach and pray and leave the results in God's hands. So that was his determination to keep it very simple. Secondly, his disposition, verse 2. This might be, I think, Bruce, you mentioned earlier, this is probably one of your favorite verses. I've heard you say this in regular conversation and in other uh, scenarios a great many times. It is a wonderful verse. I don't know what a life verse is, but if you want a life verse, take this one. I don't know, that life verse just sounds American to me. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is, that is awesome. That is an amazing verse. So the first thing he does is kind of lay out his determination. Now the second thing he does is he really just describes his basic general disposition, his full-time attitude. This is his attitude. This is his disposition. 
When Paul was in Corinth, he displayed zero interest in learning the latest fads, learning the latest trends or gimmicks or techniques or technologies or branding strategies, right, for presenting the gospel. When he came there, he wasn't interested in what they were saying at the Acropolis. He wasn't interested in their teaching styles. He wasn't interested in, in adopting whatever it takes to get his message out there. He didn't have a GoDaddy account. He didn't have a website. didn't have a Facebook. He didn't care about those things. His attitude was that he just wanted to know Christ and the gospel, and that's it. And what he's saying in this context is, is exactly that. When I came out there... I didn't adopt all your teaching styles, and I didn't take on any of that because I had a singular mindset. I had a singular disposition and attitude, and that was what? To know Christ and him crucified. I don't care what Fred at the Acropolis is doing. I don't care what they're doing over at the synagogue. I don't care what's happening on the street corner with the soapbox philosopher. I don't care what your styles dictate or determine or what your culture wants to hear. I'm not interested in making the gospel relevant to you. It is relevant to you. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. You can avoid all of that by trusting in Christ. You can become a new creation. He wanted to keep things so simple that his message was that, verse 2. I wanted to know nothing but. I was determined to know nothing but. My attitude is to know nothing but Christ. Christ Jesus and him crucified. Man, if it were just that easy... Just to keep that as the central focus and general disposition at all times. I would say that he had a singular attitude. He was firmly fixed on presenting Jesus Christ and him crucified, not in accordance with the cultural standards, but in the simplest, clearest, and most loud and focused terms. That's what he wanted to do. That was his attitude. That was his aim. And guess what? The Corinthians knew it. They knew it. Verse 2 is not just a historical detail as he highlights what he did when he came through there. It is a reminder. All of these are reminders. Paul is saying, do you remember how I was when I was with you? What was my attitude and focus? Was my mind set on the techniques and speaking eloquently like the local philosophers? Is that how I was when I was with you? No, I was focused on Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. That was my focus in simplest terms. Hodge again says, Paul's only design in going to Corinth was to preach Christ. That should be our only design, by the way. His only design was to preach Christ. And Christ not as a teacher or as an example or as a perfect man or as a new starting point in the development of the human race. All this would be mere philosophy. But he came to preach Christ as crucified, as dying for our sins. What a, what a great point Hodge makes. Christ, he comes to Corinth, Paul comes to Corinth to preach Christ as the Savior, not as just another thing or passing trend or talented philosopher or a new idea or maybe your best life now. He is preaching Christ for the death and slaughter and burial and resurrections for your sins so that you can be raised to life in Christ and experience the abundant life he promises, become a new creation and all that. That's what... Paul came to do. That was his attitude. And I want you to take special note of something here. Notice the phrasing that he used. Notice how he said what? I what? I decided. I decided. No, Paul didn't decide for Christ. He was on the road to Damascus. Christ decided for him, right? He's not talking about salvation. 
He's not talking about anything like that. He's talking about he made a conscious choice and decision to be about Christ and the crucifixion. In fact, I would say that that, that is not just a one-time choice. That is not just a one-time decision. That is a daily decision he had to, to make, didn't he? Why? Because it's easy for us to, to get distracted by maybe our finery, our clothing, our finances, our food, the daily cares of life, right? We prayed earlier as we started this that we wouldn't be distracted by the daily cares. In fact, if you know anything uh, in Matthew, uh, I think it's chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, somewhere in there, even the, the first 12 disciples were distracted by this. They're leaving with Jesus to go tour around Israel to preach the gospel and spread the gospel. And they're like, I, don't, I didn't have an extra tunic with me. I don't have any food. And he said, you know what? If you focus on the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. So Paul decides not once, but consistently as he's walking as a disciple of Christ to make his life and message and speech only about Christ and only about the gospel. He had to decide that for himself. It was within his ability with the Holy Spirit in him for him to consciously entertain that notion and to make that decision each day as he woke up to a new day. I am deciding to be about the gospel and about Christ today. That's my decision. And then as the distractions are coming, because believe me, they were coming in his day, just like they come today, he would go back to his default decision in the morning and say, no, I decided that's fine, that's a good thing to pray for, but I'm not going to be distracted by that right now, especially when I'm about to preach in the synagogue. He made a conscious choice and decision every step of the way to be focused on Christ. And that was in Matthew 6.25, by the way, where the disciples were distracted by all the cares of this world. If we don't make a conscious daily decision to cultivate and develop a gospel-only mindset and attitude, we are in jeopardy of being distracted, pulled off mission. Even worse, we could become carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4.14. It is essential that we cultivate and develop this discipline of Christ-only, gospel-only. If that is our message and mission, why are we focused on everything else every day? Why? We need to have this singular focus as Paul did. Now, Jesus lived for the glory of God in every conceivable way, even when it came to him coming to make his life and all that he did about his sheep and for his sheep. He came to earn our righteousness. He came to die a horrific death on a cross to pay for our sins, to be buried in a rich man's tomb, to settle our accounts. He he came to, through all of that heartache and pain and death and destruction and slaughter, he, he not only was buried, but he came to rise from death on the third day for our justification. And I would just say this, since he came to live his life for us, for the glory of God, it's time for us as his people to reciprocate. It's time for us to live our lives for the one who lived for us. Amen? We need to live for him. And in one way to begin to do this is to cultivate and to decide on a daily basis what? To have a Christ only and Him crucified attitude, mindset, determined to have that each day, determined to, to bring Christ glory in each day, determine, determine yourself and make the decision to preach the gospel each day to someone to share the gospel, to gossip 
the gospel to, to model the sacrificial work of Christ in your service. Lay down your life for others. Lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. This is what we have to decide to do if we are actually going to reciprocate and live our lives for him. And by the way, he requires nothing less. Do you, you know what he meant when he said, you must bear your cross to be my disciple? It meant you are to live your entire life for me. Every aspect of your life is to be lived for me under my reign and rule. And he's not coming to rule. He rules right now. He is our king right now, and, and we are subject to our king. He is our Kyrios, our Lord, and we are his doulos, servants or slaves. So right now, you have to make this decision that Paul made to be gospel-saturated, to be gospel-centered. This is the great deterrent from getting lured away into sin. This is the great deterrent from getting lured away into anxiety. It is. Will you make that decision today? Will you make it? Will you make it tomorrow? Because you can't just make it today. Because tomorrow you'll wake up with a whole new set of distractions and trouble and pains. How do I get hurt while sleeping? I wake up with muscles pulled. I'm like, did I fight you last night, honey? You know? She has an alarm halfway across the bed. If I cross it, it wakes her up, tells her to get back to my side. Right? So it wasn't me. You, you wake up every day with, with a world of distractions, with a, a body of pains, a church of needs, a family of dysfunction. Hallelujah. This is us. We live in a fallen world. So what do you have to do? You got to decide. You got to remember to decide. Start your morning with prayer and make that decision in the morning to be about Christ that day. Reciprocate. Live for him. That's what we must do. He lived for our, he, he, he glorified God by living his life for us sacrificially and all these things. It's time for us to live our lives for the glory of God by laying down and sacrificing ourselves for him. Right? It's Romans 12. I'll tell you what, the, the world says the good life comes through sin and self-indulgence, doesn't it? Joel Osteen, I'm picking on him today and he deserves it. Joel Osteen says the best life comes through self-improvement. The Bible teaches very clearly that the abundant life comes through dying to oneself and living solely for Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is your best life now. Die to yourself. Decide to follow Jesus every day. Lay down your life for him. He will exalt you in your humility. He will exalt you in that. And one day, he will glorify you for it. He will. Make that daily decision to bear your own cross and know only Christ and him crucified. And that abundant life that he speaks of, it will not only be yours, and it is really truly for every believer, but especially for those who actually decide and focus and live for him. That's where you get to experience not just the abundant life that he gives to all of his people, but it in all of its fullness. And that's the goal, right? Number three, Paul's demonstration, verses three to four. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in 
uh, plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Stop there. The third thing Paul did here is describe his weakness when he first visited Corinth. He was not referring to bodily infirmities like in Galatians 4.14. You know, he had some eyesight problems or something of that nature, some kind of thorn. Maybe he had bad eyesight because I think he contracted malaria and it can destroy your eyesight, but we don't know. But in any case, he's not speaking the same way to the Corinthians that he was to the Galatians. He's not talking about a body, bodily ailment. The context has to show because of the context that he was referring to a state of mind or his state of mind. Now, the local philosophers were just brimming with all sorts of self-confidence and self-reliance. They prided themselves on being autonomous and articulate, you know, deep thinkers. When Paul came to town, he demonstrated the exact opposite, weakness, fear, and much trembling. His speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom, which means they weren't eloquent or fancy. His speech and message were simple. He was criticized for appearing mentally dull and overly simplistic by fans of the local philosophers in the Corinthian church. I don't know if you know this or not, but there were people in this church that didn't care for his teaching at all because he just didn't have enough style. He didn't have enough flair. They said this, oh, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Second Corinthians 10, 10. These are the same people saying this about him. How sad. Now we have to ask the question, was Paul or did Paul deliberately demonstrate these weaknesses to be different from the community's strong philosophers? Was this some kind of act? Was he acting weak? Was he acting, um, you know, was he putting on a, a, a fear show? Was he somehow making himself tremble? You know, was this just an act to, so that the people that he was that he was um, ministering to would, would just see him that way so he was opposite to his community. No, this was not an act. This was not a show. He is describing here his actual weakness and insufficiency. Paul never felt up to the task of spreading the gospel and planting churches. Never. He had zero self-confidence. None. It's not an act. It's who he was. Hodge again said... He had a work. Now, listen to this. He gives a rationale for why Paul was weak, carried himself the way that he did. It wasn't deliberate, it was just the way he was. He says he had a work to do which he felt to be entirely above his powers. You ever felt like that when you had a task you had to do and you felt like it was so far above you and beyond you that you were just trembling, that you were anxious? I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. This was me last week with this new sound system. I'm not lying. I turned it on and went, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Jared, let's send it back. I was scared to death because it, it didn't communicate with me or act like everything that I've ever been used to. And that is a small example of anything, but we've all felt this way where we felt like we weren't up to the task. How many of you are parents and felt like from the beginning and halfway through and even today, you don't feel like a sufficient parent that you were totally equipped to do the job? How many of you felt like that? Especially when your kid starts to act up, you're like, I don't know where Jimmy went wrong. He probably went wrong when I, Sally, went wrong. Right? Th this is a common occurrence for us to feel insufficient about things. And Paul's deal was when it came to being a minister of the gospel, that's where he felt the weakness. I'm sure that every time he proclaimed the gospel in a new community or whatever, or maybe even when he stepped into the pulpit like in Ephesus where he preached in the same synagogue for like two and a half, three years, I'm sure that there was trepidation, anxiety, and nervousness. 
I mean, I, I, I get pretty comfortable with preaching in front of you. I do it every week. But when I go to a new church, I'm like ready to hurl because I don't know these people. And you get the butterflies and you get nervous and you feel like you're not up to the task. And then when I just stop and think about what I'm actually doing, that makes it a thousand times worse. What am I about to do? Preach the word of God. Oh, Lord, save me. Are you kidding me? I'm about to handle this and to be judged more critically for my handling of it than the common Joe that doesn't handle it like me. That is a, a weight to bear at times. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He is, he is nervous and he is sickly feeling and he is weak and he is emotionally and mentally weak and fearful and even trembling in his body because he handles the very word of God. In fact, he is a revealer of the word of God because God is actually doing revelation through him. What a task that he had. I don't think there's a higher task in the whole universe uh, other than being the king of the universe. I think that the second highest task to that or whatever, maybe we don't even put God on the spectrum, but the highest human task that exists is the proclamation of the word. And I don't say that because I do it. I don't say that like, oh, look at me. Look what I get to do. This scares the tar out of me. It is the highest thing that someone can do because you are handling the very word of God. And that is Paul's reservation and concern. And, and, and it is what he's demonstrating. He's not demonstrating strength and all this mental ability and, and just all this, you know, like I've got it together. That's not his attitude as he goes to this place. He was weak and fearful and trembling. Why would they want to follow somebody who's weak, fearful, and trembling? That's really what he's asking. You know how I was when I came to you. I was like a wet chihuahua, <laughs> right? And, and, you, and you, 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 you're following me? Did you, did you not see me when I was with you? I was a mess. Why? Because I handled the word of God. This is what he's saying here. He... Um, yeah, it wasn't a deliberate act. It's who he was. He ministered in weakness, fear, and much trembling because he understood his message. He wasn't simply teaching empty man-centered philosophies. He wasn't teaching narcissistic self-help strategies. He wasn't teaching a false prosperity gospel. He was teaching the power and wisdom of God unto salvation, the gospel, all caps. Anyone who preaches the gospel should have some hesitation, should have some fear, should have some trembling from time to time. The man who knows the gospel, the man who teaches the gospel, he will do it in weakness, fear, and trembling because he understands that he is proclaiming the only good news that can save sinners from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. He knows he has no power to save. I know that. If you preached, you know that. We know this. But we also get anxious to get the message right because we understand what's at stake. We do. In, in the preacher's mind, in the teacher's mind, the sinner's souls are hanging in the balance. Men and women are dangling above the pit of hell by a spider's web. Jonathan Edwards. The preacher-teacher is terrified at the thought of misspeaking. He wants to be true to the word of God or else die. He feels like Jeremiah. He must preach because the word is like a fire in his heart, a fire in his bones, and he cannot hold it in. Jeremiah 20, 19, or 29, actually, 20, verse 9. 
And he also, at the same time that he feels like Jeremiah, like he's bursting and he's, he's on fire and he's got to spread the flames of God's word because it is like a fire. He, he also feels at the same exact time like Paul, weak and fearful and trembling. Why? Because of the infinite importance of his work. Paul did not demonstrate mental and verbal strength. He demonstrated the opposite, not as a show, but because he was truly weak, truly fearful, truly trembling. Now, when he was a Pharisee, before he was actually converted and saved, he strutted around like a prideful, cocky rooster. He really did. He had his religion down. But when he was converted, he spent his first three days as a Christian, blind as a bat, Acts 9-9. Can you imagine that? Hey, I can't wait to give my... My heart to the Lord, I get saved, and then you're blind. I don't know what kind of deal this is. Can I take my heart back? I mean, stop and think about that. The first thing the man does when he's converted on the Damascus Road is he is blinded. And guess what that was? That was a teaching moment for him. The first among many. What do blind people do? They rely on others to help them get around. Christ was showing Paul that he would need to rely on the Holy Spirit not just for direction, but for power and strength to proclaim the eternal gospel, 1 Peter 1.25. Paul's presentation of the gospel in Corinth may not have been impressive according to community standards, but the end, at the end of verse 4 it says the Holy Spirit worked through it to demonstrate divine salvific power. Look at that. You see, the orations of the eloquent local philosophers couldn't save a gnat but Paul's simple and clear gospel presentations saved an entire body of people, obviously through the ministry of the Spirit. He is reminding the Corinthians of that here. He is, in a sense, saying, since when did those philosophies and those great communicators that you love so much, since when did any of you get saved and redeemed under them? You didn't, did you? Well, no, come to think of it, we didn't. We liked what they said, but... There was no power there. And what happened when I came and talked to you about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, absent of all eloquence and oratory skill, a simple gospel. What happened in your circles with you and your friends and your family in the agora, you know, the shopping place? When I came and preached, what happened there? What did the Spirit do? Well, he saved us by that message, that simple non-flashy, non-gold-dangly, alluring message. In fact, it's a repulsive message because it tells us that we cannot save ourselves. And what did God do when he came to Corinth? Saved them through that simple gospel. He is saying to them, remember, 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 remember how it was. This is effective. This is the example that Paul had set for the Corinthians Unlike the seemingly strong and stable philosophers of their community, he demonstrated weakness, fear, trembling, and a total and absolute reliance on the Holy Spirit. But the Corinthians were not following this example either, were they? No, they were following the culture with its philosophical ideas and techniques, and that led to the carnal unity that got them blown out in this whole book. Again, it's not just their example, it's our example. We must be uh, willing to humbly admit our weaknesses and insufficiency, especially when it comes to the handling of God's word. For only then when we 
move out of that pride and self-sufficiency into a humble state of mind, into humility, for only then when we make that transition will we actually begin to see the Spirit move in our lives in power. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? So if we walk around with all of this skill and ability and self-sufficiency, I'm a, I'm like, we're like Stuart Smalley. I like me. I'm a great person. I have all these abilities. This is the mentality I had when we planted this church. After a year, I was ready to move to Moscow because it was so hard and difficult and humiliating. Praise God. Praise God. You walk around with that mentality. You're pedantic. You know everything. You walk around with that attitude. The Holy Spirit is not working in you. That is the spirit of flesh and pride. When you walk around knowing you're a lump of dirt, that's when the spirit is working. Especially when it comes to the handling of this. I, I pray that I, I never lose that sense of awe and fear and trepidation and anxiousness by the proclam- you know, through the proclamation of the word of God and that process of doing that. Because the day that I do that is when I need to hang up my, my preaching robes. I don't really wear them, but I need to hang them up and find something else to do with my life because I'm not fit. Preachers should be the most humble of all people. And I will admit to you there are times when I am not. But you should be humble too. You should be humble too. If you want to see the Spirit move in power in your life, decide to be dirt and you will see it. But you keep hanging on to yourself and your glory and what you think you are, you're not getting anywhere. In fact, God will, because he loves his children, he will discipline you in the most exotic, devastating way because he is a great pride crusher. He'll take the things from you that you put your hope in. Be mindful of that, people. Be mindful of it. It is our example. The world mocks weakness, but the Spirit moves in weakness. It is in our weakness that God's power is what made perfect. 2 Corinthians 12, 9a. Paul gladly boasted about his weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9b. Now let's quickly summarize before we move into the last point. It's necessary that we do that. Paul reminded the Corinthians of his determination. Knowing his audience, he was determined to avoid lofty speech, eloquence, and cultural techniques. Secondly, Paul reminded the Corinthians of his disposition. His attitude was singular. He was firmly fixed on presenting Jesus Christ and him crucified in the simplest terms. And thirdly, Paul reminded the Corinthians of his demonstration. He did not demonstrate strength and pride and self-sufficiency like the local philosophers. He demonstrated weakness, fear, and much trembling, and an absolute total reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now we have to ask this question before we move into the final point and begin to wrap up. What is the point to all of this? Why set before this church all these reminders? Why did he, why is he reminding them of how he lived these things out before them? It is for a very, very simple reason. So that his desire might be met. He had a desire and he wanted it to be met. He had to live these things out to meet it. What is his desire? It's in the fourth and final D. That is number four, Paul's desire. Verse five, here is what he wanted. Here's why he did what he did. Here's what he's reminding them for, the purpose for all of the way he lived and all that. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's that simple. Paul's concern 
was that the Corinthians might be led astray by the wisdom of the local philosophers. Their influence was pervasive. It was far-reaching. Those who value style over substance tend to be more easily led astray by sweet-talking philosophers and false teachers. These brothers and sisters that Paul is ministering to here, he's writing to here, they had already subjected themselves to the wisdom of the philosophers. How? They adopted their views on teaching style. You know, what was the philosophy? What was the angle? What was the idea? Well, you have to use eloquence and lofty speech when teaching. That is the mentality and attitude of the local philosophers, and that is now the attitude of these Christians in this church. Paul reckons that it might not be long before they adopt their views on substance. Hey, man, you know what? You got to have eloquence and all this in your teaching, but look at what you're teaching. The gospel, come on, man, the word of the cross is folly. This is what he's worried about. You adopt their style, maybe they'll also fall under their persuasion even further and adopt their substance, which is anti-gospel. Fact of the matter is, ideas have consequences. And when bad theological, philosophical, or scientific ideas enter the church, it can be devastating. It can be devastating. Paul thinks the Corinthians might be headed in that direction. And that's why he's expressing all this concern. That's why he's reminding them. That's why he's luring them away from the philosophers, away from following their good teachers. They're good men. It's not their fault they're being followed. Luring them away from all of that and luring them or trying to appeal to them to come back to Christ centrality, come back to gospel centrality. Your life is about Christ Make the decision to know him and his crucifixion only. Make the decision to listen to and proclaim and share his message only. Stay away from the cultural nonsense. Stay away from the cultural swill. That's what he's saying. Ultimately, faith must not rest on human strength and ability. For such a stance subverts the message of the cross. The cross underscores the sin brokenness and weakness which is at the heart of the human condition even though human beings are gifted in astonishing ways including for some rhetorical brilliance the inventiveness of human ideas or or the inventiveness of human beings cannot solve the human dilemma or problem what is needed is nothing other than death and resurrection which means that the only answer for the redemption of human beings is what the gospel The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's a concern of Paul's here in that verse 5. I don't want your faith to rest on anything, any local philosophy, any technique or style. I want it to rest on the power of God, the wisdom of God, which is Christ. That is what is essential because that is the determining factor for whether a person is saved or not. If they are trusting in something other than the power and wisdom of God, as in Christ Jesus. If they are trusting in anyone or anything other than Christ Jesus, they're lost. They're lost. And that is why he says that in verse 5. Paul pointed back to these examples so that the Corinthians would not trust in the feel-good, ear-tickling wisdom of men, but in the power and wisdom of God, which is in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. That, my friends, was his desire. That was his desire. And I tell you what, just wrapping up, his desire should be our desire. As the people of God, his desire should be our desire. 
should be our desire for ourselves and for others. The true believer desires to trust only in Christ. He does not trust in chariots or horses, but in the name above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 20, verse 7, Philippians 2, 9. And the true believer desires for others to trust in Christ alone. Why? Because salvation is found in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. So for our own spiritual fitness and safety, we stick to the gospel. And for the benefit of others, we stick to the gospel. This is the message that we need to pass to Roman Catholics who are trusting in a papacy and in Christ. This is the message that we need to pass to all of the cultish groups like the Mormons and everything else who are essentially trusting in themselves because they think they're going to become gods and inhabit their own planets. This is the message that we need to preach for anyone who believes in dual justification, that we are somehow justified by what we do and by what we believe. When, in fact, the message of Galatians is so lucidly clear and the message of all Scripture is so lucidly clear that we are justified by faith alone and nothing else, by a simple belief and trust, and an ongoing one, by the way, not a one-time decision, an ongoing, simple belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is the key. That is how we are justified. That is what is at stake. Keep your message simple. Stay away from all the fanciness. Develop that discipline and that, that disposition of Christ only each day. Do that. What else? I already forgot my points. Make sure your desire is that of Paul, right? Make sure that you demonstrate not pride, because pride and a Christian is like oil and water. They don't go together. You're a joke if you're a Christian with pride. I'm a joke when I'm like that. Don't do that. But follow these reminders. Follow these reminders. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. There is nothing like it in the whole world. There's nothing like it in the whole universe. And we thank you for it. And um, we pray that as it has gone out this morning that it would have a not just a, a temporary effect on us right now but that it would have a long-term transformational effect on us that we would remember what we've learned today that we would apply it that it has changed us and that we would live out those changes help us to model um, the things that paul modeled and paul was only modeling jesus so help us to model what paul modeled because he was modeling what jesus modeled jesus is the embodiment of all of these things he is the perfection of them he is the one we keep our eyes on and it is his message and his message alone that we should proclaim and we should do it in utter and absolute simplicity keeping it simple and if people reject us and and, and despise us because of our message that's a badge of honor we can just pray for them and we can move on to the next person. So thank you, Lord, for a clear gospel, a clear text, and a clear calling on our lives. May we decide each day to make our lives and our thoughts and our days about Christ and him crucified, the very gospel. If we do that, you will be glorified. If we do that, the abundant life will be experienced in its fullness, even though it is full of travail and difficulty. And we will receive those things as, as, as um, things that drive us further into your grace acts of your providence that are necessary, but ultimately they are all done for our good. Thank you for being a good God. We love you, and may we sing with all our might during this next song. Send us out of here as missionaries for you with the hope of Christ in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.